Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaverdam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at PCRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. And we realize that whenever Reformation happens, things get messy. And they're starting to get messy now in the CRC. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. We also want to say a massive thank you to all those who've supported us over on Patreon. Your donations will help us continue to put out content and continue to lead reformation in the CRC. If you want to support us, head on over to patreon.com backslash the messy reformation. You can also support our podcast by sharing our content. Help us spread these conversations throughout the Christian Reformed Church. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Scott Mullenberg. Because of how foundational that is, that that works itself into so many different areas in theology and practice. You know, just one example of of this that I've recently come across is... uh, as it relates to human sexuality, you know, I, you can't say completely of like, well, um, a, a revisionist denies the authority of scripture because what's interesting is that they still do uphold the authority of scripture, but in a very interesting way, you know, sometimes the argument is made and, and it's in writing too, of like, you know, Matthew Vines argues like this and there's a post on Calvin uh, uh, University's library about, uh, this from a Dr. Robert McClarkey, but um, talking about um, what the Bible was speaking about in terms of homosexuality versus what is true now, as they'll say. What's interesting is that um, they'll say, well, the male female in creation is not normative. And they'll, and, and they'll say, you know, if, if two um, committed uh, monogamous um, men or women choose to get married. Um, the male-female is not normative in Scripture. And yet, to borrow a Vantillian term, there's so much borrowed capital involved in that because what, what makes the lifelong two monogamous normative? Um, and, I, and I think if that you are going to be, if you're going to go that route and say the male-female is not normative, I guess I would just push them to say, you know, with that understanding of scripture, I would encourage you to just go all the way and say, just get rid of all the norms. Um, Mm -hmm. So to say that, well, it's, it's a, if, if two committed men or monogamous relationship, I think you're using the language of Genesis one and two as though it's normative. And yet what hermeneutic could you possibly have that would say the male female is not normative, but the other ones are. And my point mm-hmm. is to be honest and get rid of all of them if that's what you want to do. Um, and so it's interesting of, you know, there's, you could say, well, they're denying the authority of scripture, but they're actually almost using the authority of scripture at the same time with the two committed monogamous uh, individuals. That's, that's scripture used, being used as normative uh, to ground um, how they would think. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. I'm wondering uh, what you both of you would think about this. It seems like people with a, a revisionist perspective that uh, the issue here doesn't necessarily seem to be the authority of Scripture, but more or less the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, that God has spoken clearly in all things that are sufficient for faith and life. Uh, it seems like that may be some of the, the issues that stem from these kinds of voices. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think I think I think that's absolutely spot on, Willie. Um, I think I think we have to do a good job of uh, distinguishing between uh, someone who is affirming and someone who's revisionist. Mm. Uh, those are not the same thing. Um, so a revisionist gets to the same place as someone who's fully affirming, but the route is different. Um, this might sound odd, but I actually have more. Uh, respect for the honesty of someone who is fully affirming um, than I do for someone who's a revisionist. Because even someone who is strongly affirming, and there are a number of scholars that are strongly affirming, say, no, the Bible is clear. Um, and instead of twisting and distorting scripture, I'm just going to reject it. Um, that's someone who's affirming, but not revisionist. That they can just say, I, I just reject scripture. Um, Dermon McCullough in his, uh, in his church history book on the Reformation, does this. He says, um, oh, I have it here in front of me. Um, he says, the only alternatives are to try to cleave to patterns of life and assumptions set out in the Bible, or to say that in this, as in much else, the Bible is simply wrong. Now, that's his view, but I find that more honest uh, and intellectually respectable uh, to just say, yeah, you know, Scripture's clear. I just don't believe it. Then to say, uh, scripture is not as clear and it's murky and it's muddy and, um, and we can, we can kind of distort it. And so that's getting at the sufficiency, like you said, uh, uh, that you said, Willie, of does it still speak to you? It is the word of God. Um, I just preached on this the other night of Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. It's the living and active word. It's more alive than maybe you'd think. Uh, it's sharper than maybe you'd want it to be, and it knows more than maybe you'd like. Um, it is absolutely sufficient to speak into our modern world, um, to diagnose uh, the human heart still, uh, that is deceitful above all things. Uh, it's still the scripture that's going to bring that about. And so that's why we look to the scripture to sort out um, and to, to ground uh, all of our other conversations. You know, I used the example the other night of uh, uh, you, you just start, or at least in my house, I, I just start looking around at all the clocks in our house. And my and my oldest daughter started to notice that all the clocks in the house said something different. Like, so the coffee, the, the, the clock on the coffee pot will say one time, and, and it's only off by a minute, but the oven says something different. And the microwave is a minute behind. So that says something different. And you've got your wristwatch and you've got the wall clock and, and, and the, the way that you settle of like, what time is the right time? What do you go by? Well, I think for someone, I'm going to look at my phone um, because my phone is going to give me a more accurate time than any of those other things. And I'm going to use my phone to, to, uh, to set the time for the other ones. That's the, that's the voice, so to speak. Uh, that cuts through all of those competing times 
and says, nope, this is what's true. This is what's accurate. This is what's sufficient. Um, and it and it puts those things in order. I think scripture does the same thing. A lot of other voices, a lot of other things to listen to. What does scripture say? We always need to be coming back to that touchstone. Yeah, and I, I would also include uh, that there's this emphasis being pushed in our denomination from uh, both the affirming and the revisionist to emphasize story repeatedly and, and personal experience. And I think that also points to their um, understanding of scripture being non-authoritative and having a lack of sufficiency as well. Like we need these stories um, from real life to be able to understand it. And um, I was just thinking of that again this morning uh, because of the kind of recent uh, kerfuffle going on over at Calvin University where, and the Center for Social Research, I think is what it is, where somebody stepped down and, and now is voicing their anger about the destructive and uh, the destructive policies against uh, homosexuality coming out of the Christian Reformed Church and, and all of that. And so there's a lot of anger being voiced about our stands about human sexuality in the Christian Reformed Church. But, uh, but the articles from like the Calvin Chimes and stuff, it's all, um, and maybe I'm just overly cynical, but it's all this story written in a way that makes it seem you guys are a bunch of big nasty jerks for not allowing two consenting adults who love each other to be married. And how dare you? And it's just the whole story to just kind of hit the emotions and try to get you to move off of your position from saying, no, scripture's clear on this. It makes you want, it makes people feel guilty in order to kind of move, move their position. And so this emphasis on story anyways, um, I think is a, is another thing that points to this lack of, appreciation for the sufficiency of scripture and and the authority of scripture yeah there was a um there was a uh former professor of mine carlton Wynn. he's down at a pca church now in um atlanta but they did a an adult sunday school on kind of modern topics and different things of how we got to where we are as a culture where where certain things make sense um and he he references this gentleman i've never heard of this gentleman but um uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, uh, professor of uh, theology uh, at Emory University, and uh, this individual says, and I think this, I appreciate this honesty, even though I disagree with the position, I, I appreciate the honesty. He says, I think it is important to state that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. What exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. That's refreshingly honest to just say, yes. he says straightforward commands of scripture. So he's not saying they're murky. They're not unclear. As so many people say, he's saying they are straightforward. I just don't accept them. And I accept stories instead. Um, uh, now you can, that comes with temptations too. that, that, that idea of story. And I, I think a lot of people would, um, would get nervous because, you know, you, you hear so many things of, you know, I used to have this, I used to have this traditional biblical position 
and then I met someone or my own daughter or my own son um, came out as as homosexual and now I've rethought everything and and to emphasize story so much and to emphasize well if if you were to meet someone or if this were to happen in your family you would think differently I'm not 100% sure of this, but this is just anecdotal. I would imagine that that would make some people less inclined to get to know people um, who are living a homosexual lifestyle because they're so afraid. Well, it seems as though as soon as you get to know someone, that's what changes things. And so this emphasis on story can cut the other way too. And, and, it, and I could see it almost making people nervous of saying, you know, if I, if I meet anybody or if I talk to anybody, um, who who takes a different view of than mine? It sure seems like story is going to win out, and I'm going to yeah. end up changing my position. And that's what you don't want. You don't you don't want. That's what I was saying earlier. That is the easy way out to say I'm just going to either assimilate to the culture, or I'm going to retreat to the hills. Uh, the Bible says no. Don't do either one of those things. Um, uh, maintain biblical truth and yet do it in as peter says do it with gentleness and winsomeness um uh with complete patience and careful instruction as paul tells timothy um so i think i don't know if it's often said but i i I get the vibe sometimes that um somewhere along the line repentance became seen as something detrimental to someone Um, You know, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, in his book uh, on the Westminster Standards, um, The Body of Divinity, says, you know, repentance and faith are humbling graces, like undeserved favor. So do we see repentance as, as a difficult thing, as a hard thing, but as a good thing? Um, I think sometimes we we view or we can give the impression that repentance is like a something prior to the good news rather than a part of the good news itself. Um, you know, there's a number of places in scripture, especially in the book of Acts, where you see of like that God granted them, like he gift gifted it. He gives repentance. Um, or I think it's Paul and Barnabas um, who are speaking to the crowds there and um, they something, it's, I think it's Acts 14, I want to say verse 15 in there somewhere, of um, uh, we bring you good news, telling you to turn from these living idols to the living God. So you can hear that, like, me calling, the gospel says, I'm not calling you from something really good that you're doing to something terrible. That's sometimes how repentance is, of like, yeah. It's difficult and and it's hard, and those things are true. But to say that it's detrimental to someone's good, I think, is underneath a lot of these things. That repentance can't possibly be good. It's a precursor to the good news, but it's not a part of the good news. And I think the Bible speaks about it just the other way around. That 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 Christ comes to save me from who I am by nature and from what I do as a result of that nature. And that is an immensely good thing. Um, mm-hmm. so repentance is, is, is a gift. It's not gloomy. And I think we need to maybe hit that note more often that, you know, the Bible calls you to something hard. 
when it calls you to come to Christ to die, it calls you to do something hard, but it's something that is good. And that is to die to yourself and live with Christ. Amen. Well, and our confessions say the very same thing. It's, I've told people, this is one of my favorite parts of the Heidelberg Catechism, where it says, what is involved in true conversion and or, and or repentance? It's the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. And it says the dying away of the old self is learning to hate sin more and more and run away from it. And the rising to life of the new is a wholehearted joy in God and a willingness to follow him. And, and I like, that's repentance. It's, it's running away from sin, but it's also a wholehearted joy. Like that's the Christian life is this life of continual repentance from our sin, but also finding the joy that's on the other side of it. It's not this drudgery thing. And I think, I think we start to think repentance is a bad thing when we don't actually understand that how, how deadly sin is. I think we've just forgotten how that that sin always leads toward death and destruction. It just destroys everything. And so to think that not turning away from that is a harmful thing is ridiculous. Anytime we would turn away from sin, it's going to it should be a joyful matter. Yeah. And and the other thing that you take away, you you actually uh if you can say it this way, you actually interrupt heavenly worship when you deny the need for repentance because it so clearly says there um, I have it written down as Luke 15 of that. The angels in heaven take joy and they delight over one sinner who repents. If you take that away and say, repentance is not needed or repentance is this gloomy, terrible thing. Um, or that, that, re- that faith and repentance are not at the heart of the gospel as, as a particular overture this year says um, you, you interrupt heavenly worship of what do you say then to the angels who, who rejoice over one sinner who repents, you take that away. And, um, and, I, and I think that note needs to be struck of, you know, the gospel calls you to do something extremely hard. It calls you to die. It, I mean, it, it, it goes that far. Come and be crucified with Christ. Um, I've said before from the pulpit of like, you know, as a Christian, you hold together two very, very, um, ironic things if you can say it like that you you are you are so truly dead as a christian and yet at the same time you are so truly alive that you have died with christ um you have been crucified with him you've been buried with him in baptism um but you've also been raised with him he is your very life you have been raised with christ and seated at the in the heavenly places um and so i think we need to do a good job of and that that requires hard work from ministers, but um, it we we just need to. I think we need to recalibrate a little bit and say, do we do we really understand that we're calling them to something that is right, but we're also calling them to something that is good, the goodness of the gospel that it is a good thing to die to myself and to live with Christ. Might be hard, might be excruciatingly hard. You might, your cross that you have to take up is going to be extremely burdensome for many. Um, but do you see that as a good thing to die to yourself? And and I think uh, for many, I think repentance is seen as this nasty, gloomy thing. 
Um, when in reality, it's as Watson says, as I mentioned, it's a grace, it's undeserved favor to be able to repent and to believe the gospel by the Lord's grace. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Scott, I'm just wondering as, as we come to a close and as we, we have a lot of uh, issues on our mind as pertaining to this upcoming synod um, and just the current state of our denomination, uh, we look across and we see a lot of work that needs to be done. And we see a lot of work that is being done. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you have a word for ministers, elders, church leaders who are kind of in the midst of these things, uh, just as a word of encouragement or just kind of a word for them as we as we go from here? Yeah, um, a number of things uh, come to my mind. Um, I think one is that you, you need to think... Um, need to give a lot of thought to what the what your goal is coming up to synod 2022 um because goals are great things but goals also bring temptations with them so if you're if your goal as you move towards synod 2022 is the goal at all costs is unity that's going to bring in its wake a temptation to kind of diminish very strong significant differences Mm -hmm. Um, but if that's your goal, it's going to come with dangers and risks. If your goal is to, um, as they say, if your goal is to win, whatever that looks like, um, the temptation comes with it of maybe you'll do something that's a little bit more dishonest, cutting corners, doing something behind the scenes that maybe you shouldn't be doing, but the goal is to win. So we got to do it at all costs. Um, I have found Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper on this really helpful, um, he, he gave an address in, um, in 1885 that I've recently just come across called Iron and Clay, and it was at the prayer meeting for the Free University, and, um, but James Bratt, his biographer, basically calls this address the theological and ontological warrant for the Doliante in 1886, mm-hmm. and Kuiper says um, in, uh, in better words than I can give him right now, but he basically says that 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 the chief thing, the, the driving uh, focus is unconditional obedience and loyalty to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, and I find that helpful because if, if you go into synod and churches go into this summer with that as their goal, no matter what the results, that, that my task is to give unflinching, uncompromising loyalty and obedience to the king of kings to be a good citizen to this king to be a faithful sheep to this good shepherd i think you can take in stride either a win or a loss that if you win yet your goal is unconditional obedience to the king if you win you don't get overly elated and if you lose you don't get overly dejected because you say my goal uh, no matter how this pans out, is to is to offer unconditional, unflinching obedience to the King of Kings, and I think you can take in stride no matter what happens. Um, another thing I would say is that um, I would just caution. Um, I would just caution. I think the the CRC from thinking that we are necessary. Um, that might sound a little bit abrasive, but. Um, 
I love the CRC. I think it is worth fighting for. But I also know that that properly speaking, Christ Church was just fine for the first 1800 years of church history from from the days of the New Testament. If the CRC is once again a bastion of truth, then let's rejoice um, and give thanks to our God. But if it doesn't, and it needs to be let go, then if you cling too tightly to it as though it's it's nice, but it's absolutely necessary, and Christ must have the CRC to do his work, that's just simply not true. Um, that, that our loyalty is to Christ the King, not, uh, not the denomination, as much as we love it, as much as we long to see it uh, reformed according to God's word, um, we, we have to be able to let it go if it comes to that. Um, and, and Kuiper in that same address says that same thing. He says, you know, any true reformer will, will leave no stone unturned. And he and a, and a true reformer who is working in the church will, will go to great lengths to try to reform the church. But when there, when there becomes such a clear principled opposition between um, obedience to Christ and his word and principled opposition to that, he says, it's not in the category anymore of, can I leave? He says, you must. You must leave. Um, those are pretty strong words. And he even uses in that address of like, you know, to rebel against the Lord and his word is, he uses the words of mutiny. Like this is an uprising. This is a revolutionary move to, to raise your fist um, against the Lord, the King of glory. And so he says it's the church's job to put that mutiny to rest anywhere that she finds it. Um, strong words, um, but I think helpful words for us. Um, I have a couple more. Um, <laughs> I've been, it, it's just such a big topic. I think conservatives can make errors in our churches too. You know, we need to turn the, the spotlight on ourselves. And so um, you know, we can we can easily summarize, I think, the 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 error that we see in a revisionist stance, and they and, and we might summarize it like this. And we say the error there is that you say, well, come to Christ by faith, and then you don't need to be cleansed after coming to Christ by faith from this particular thing, sexuality, homosexuality. I would say on on the on the whole that could be a, a useful summary of someone who is a revisionist. I think a conservative error and a temptation is to just flip that thing around and to say, you need to clean yourself up prior to coming to Christ. And I think if we do, I, th I think if we focus on a revisionist error, we also need to turn the, the lens on ourselves and say, do we give off this vibe that, that you clean yourself up and then you can come to the building. That as, as Belgian Confession Article 29 talks about, like fleeing from sin uh, and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, is that note struck in, in our churches, in our circles of saying, no, you do not have to put this sin to death to make yourself worthy to come to Christ by faith. It is coming to Christ to die 
that puts that to death. Um, and so I think there are errors on both sides um, and there might be temptations on both sides. Uh, the last thing I'll say um, is uh, I, do, I, do think, I do think the atonement is being overlooked um, as we approach sin in 2022. Um, the overture from Ileana is still coming. And so it's going to have to get decided on um, their overture is coming this summer. So I, I do get the, the, the tactical decision to say that is, a, that is a future thing to think about. The way I guess I think about it is, you know, John Murray's classic Redemption Accomplished and Applied uh, book. Um, such a great, helpful little book. But you could think about it as both of those things are actually coming to Synod this summer. Redemption Accomplished is coming in the nature of the atonement. Redemption applied is coming of what does the Christian life look like as it relates to sexuality and faith and repentance and mortification of sin. Redemption accomplished and redemption applied are both coming to synod this summer. To say that one of those things is more important than the other, I think, in my from my vantage point, I think is misguided. Um, we're going to be in a tough spot if the sexuality one goes well, however you define that. And the atonement one does not. Um, I hope we're not in that position, but I think that could put a lot of people in an interesting position that, hey, you got what you wanted on the big popular um, discussion, um, but then denying penal substitutionary atonement, you let that one slip by. What makes redemption applied more important to talk about than redemption accomplished? They're both coming. They're both coming to Synod in 2022. So I guess I would end with just a warning and an encouragement, a warning to keep, uh, as Paul tells Timothy, to just keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. You know, I'm amazed in Pilgrim's Progress when uh, when they're going into Vanity Fair, evangelist tells them to keep a close watch in their heart because it's deceitful and to watch out for the, the desires of your heart. I think that would be a, a warning is um, I do fear that sustained prolonged controversy in the church can have a way of uh, wearing down the soul and the spiritual vitality of a minister and then by implication probably the congregation you know you've probably heard it said before that for better or for worse the congregation takes on the mannerisms and the the personality of the minister so a minister who is almost always thinking about controversy and a minister is always reading and researching and online thinking about these particular issues. Um, I guess I would I would issue a word of caution there. You know, are you doing things uh, for the for the good of your heart um, that bring you nourishment that are not contentious? Are you doing those things? Are you reading those things? Are you what's your prayer life look like? Uh, in this season of ministry in the CRC. I think the encouragement that I would give um, uh, is what Jesus says, of, you know, the gates of Hades, gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Um, R.B. Kuyper has the great little book, The Glorious Body of Christ, which is his writings on the doctrine of the church. And the, the chapter that he, that he talks about that text is the indestructibility of the church. It's just such a great phrase of, you know, if there's anything, there's so many things to remember this year of all years, but I think that would be one of them that, that 
we need to just take those promises to heart and say, you know, if if the CRC is reformed, great. If the CRC is not reformed, okay. The the Church of Christ is indestructible because Christ will not let His church fall. Doesn't mean the CRC is eternal or an everlasting, um, but it does mean that Christ's bride um, will never be snuffed out. It'll never come to an end. It'll never lay in a heap of rubble, collapsed by the side of the way. Um, Christ preserves His people and. So those are precious promises to take hold of, that Christ's church is, is just absolutely indestructible. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Laura Copley. But until then, don't forget this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.